over time, we have still kind of held on to that old equation of diversity equals inclusion, when in reality, those are two very different words with very different meanings, uh, and one is a verb, right? And so I think that the old uh, approach at kind of counting heads and meeting quotas has fallen severely short of the desired impact, which is what I consider to be the new equation and my philosophy and the philosophy of my company around this work, which is to create an environment where people experience a sense of belonging and truly, you know, uh, inclusion, as well as have equal access to equitable and inclusive policies, practices, and procedures. And that, as a result, will have diversity as an outcome versus a driver of the work. Do you want to be a leader who gets noticed, gets things done, and gets real results? Then you need influence and authority. Join host Jennifer McClure to learn how to build authority, expand your influence, and increase your impact. This is the Impact Makers Podcast with Jennifer McClure. Hey there, Impact Makers. Thanks for joining me for episode 51 of the Impact Makers Podcast. I love having the opportunity to share with you each week, and I hope that you'll continue to join me here. By the way, did you know that by subscribing or leaving a rating and review, you help others to find this podcast? And by subscribing to the podcast in your favorite podcast player, you'll never miss an episode because they'll be automatically delivered. I mean, who knows? I might just throw in some bonus episodes at some point in the future, and you know you would not want to miss out on those. Another thing that I'd like to ask you to do is to leave a rating and review for an episode or the podcast as a whole if you haven't done so already. I read each and every one, and with 50 ratings thus far, all but one has been five stars. So thank you to my four-star rater for challenging me to continue to improve so that hopefully one day you'll come off that additional star for me. (laughs) Now back to business. I'm excited for you to listen in on the conversation with my guest this week. Jennifer Ingram is the founder and CEO of Calibrated Lens LLC, where she specializes in helping organizations to enhance their performance, productivity, and brand presence by centering equity and inclusion. Through her work at Calibrated Lens, she helps clients facilitate sustainable change to optimize performance, presence, and productivity. Jennifer has previously served as the Vice President of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at the United Way of Greater Cincinnati, which is the sixth largest United Way in the nation, and she's also led DEI strategies at two nationally ranked academic medical centers, the Mayo Clinic and Henry Ford Health System. She's passionate about her work and describes herself as an equity and inclusion evangelist. I think you'll learn a lot from the fresh perspectives that she shares. Just a quick note that there are a few audio glitches in her conversation due to a weak internet signal, or maybe it was a glitch in the matrix, who knows, but it won't last too long and it doesn't prevent you from understanding the points that are being made. So hang in there with us. Lots of good stuff coming your way today. Well, Jennifer Ingram, it's so nice to speak with you today. I look forward to having a conversation with you about the work that you're doing. We had the opportunity to connect thanks to an introduction from Michonne Styles, correct? Yes. Uh, a person that I met through Disrupt HR and love connecting with her and also with you. And when we chatted, I thought you had so many things to say that I wanted to have an opportunity to get you to share that with my community of impact makers. So here we are today and we'll start with just tell us a little bit about who you are. 
Wonderful. Well, my name is Jennifer Ingram. I'm a native of the Metro Detroit area, uh, but I think it's important to go backwards before moving forwards. My story didn't start uh, in Detroit, Michigan. It started in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, which is where my great grandparents were from. After you know experiencing segregation and the Jim Crow South, my great grandfather, uh, when I was growing up, would always tell me that I wasn't the type of man that could live in the South. And I never quite understood that as a child. And now as an adult, you know, doing the work that I do, I have a much better understanding of what that meant and the gravity of that. So my great grandparents fled a Jim Crow South and settled as refugees in the city of Detroit, Michigan. I think that's important because we didn't necessarily choose to leave as much as we were forced to migrate if uh, our family was to have more opportunity and not experience the oppression and that was present at the time. And so uh, from there, we, we for four generations have been based in and anchored in the city of Detroit. That is the place that I still call home today. Uh, although I have moved several times, I, I like to make the joke that I've made the Midwest circuit. <laughs> so I've lived in Chicago. Uh, I've lived in Rochester, Minnesota for a while. Uh, and now I am in uh, Cincinnati, Ohio, where I'm based. Something else that I think is uh, kind of noteworthy about me, I am the product of a community and of a village. So I mentioned my great grandparents. Uh, I had them in my life, my great grandmother in my life until I was well into my 20s, which is something that not a lot of people can say. And I think that it was the lessons that were instilled within me from you know several generations of my family family members that have really helped to shape and mold me in who I am today. Um, I stand strong and anchored in integrity and the, the work that I do, and I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit further into the conversation. But I grew up in a very diverse community in the Metro Detroit area, and I sat on my first diversity and inclusion committee when I was in elementary school. And I think that it's noteworthy, uh, uh, largely because some of those experiences have still impacted me to this day and how I approach people with differences uh, around curiosity and, and not judgment. And so I think uh, as it relates to my parents, my, my father was a medic in the U.S. military uh, for 23 years. My mom is an African-American woman in tech. Uh, she's an executive for a, a large technology firm. And it, what we know about technology today is that the bro code uh, is still alive and thriving. And it is still an industry that struggles with diversity and having an inclusive environment. And so watching my mom you know, navigate those uh, waters uh, as a young child, and you know, I remember going to work with her on Take Your Child to Work Day and kind of looking and wondering, wow, there's no one around here that looks like you, mom, and you know, <laughs> having to navigate in a certain way. And uh, I think at a very young age, I realized the workplace was not a, a place of safety and security uh, where all people could be authentic, um, again, at, at, a, at a rather young age. And so uh, the culmination of all those experiences have led to, you know, the work that I do today. A couple of other noteworthy things just about me. I've traveled the world. I've visited six continents in over 30 countries and asking the, the question of how do people experience life and a sense of connectivity and inclusion uh, and creating community. So uh, I love to travel, love to experience different cuisines and uh, I collect spices from everywhere that I go, be it domestic or uh, abroad. And so uh, I love to cook. Uh, as well. So wow. a little bit about me and uh, my background. Um, so 
Well, I have so many things I can ask questions from there. First, I'm like uh, calling out that Cincinnati is part of the Midwest circuit. I like that. (laughs) (laughs) We we are moving up in the world when we're in the same race as Chicago and other cities. Um, Second one, you know, you mentioned your great grandparents and the fact that you had the opportunity to spend time with them. I remember mine when I was very young, didn't get to spend that much time with them before they passed on. So that's obviously a huge gift and that they come with so much experience that is unique to the time that they were a part of. What is maybe one of the most interesting or impactful stories that one of your great-grandparents shared with you about their life? I think that I was always curious as a child about how we ended up in Detroit. Most of our family was in Mississippi. I remember in the summers going down to to visit and, you know, getting talks around, you know, when people speak to you, yes, ma'am, no, sir, um, and these behaviors that I didn't quite understand. And so it wasn't until I was probably in my late teens that I got this story. And so I, again, always ask, why did we move? Why did we move? Why did you all migrate? But my uh, great-grandfather witnessed um, a neighbor uh, that was severely beaten by a group of white men. And that happened just shortly before uh, they decided to, to move. Specifically, the reason why um, was what you know, was most shocking. The man that bought a pickup truck. Right. And he was hauling, um, you know, goods and materials for folks around the neighborhood and it started his own business. And he was perceived as a threat. You know, how dare this boy from Mississippi go and buy a truck to to start a business? And so, uh, you know, that uh, d- deeply impacted me and my views. And, you know, my great grandparents, when they uh, got to Detroit, ended up uh, opening up a dry cleaning business. Um, my great grandfather uh, had the opportunity to learn uh, as a worker, and you know they they sacrificed and were able to save up enough money and whatnot to to start their own business. So I think that um, that story, specifically around be, being an entrepreneur uh, and starting and, and running your own business and the risk and the the uh, uh, just the gravity of that. And now that I am, you know, after having been an organizational executive and having worked in you know several global brands, I now am a business owner. And so that story, I think, in this moment in my life, and especially with all of the social unrest that we're witnessing, uh, definitely is one that is, you know, deeply impactful for me. Mm-hmm. So wonderful that you're able to to get that history from them directly. You also mentioned another thing caught my ear was that you were part of a diversity and inclusion committee in elementary school. Yes. Um, was this because you were in a very progressive school that was recognizing many years ago that this was important? Or was this more of a check the box? How, how did it work out? Was it for real? Yeah. Well, it, it, it's funny that you asked that question. It was a very diverse community. Mm-hmm. And so we there were probably fewer than 20 African-American students in the school. Um, however, there were, you know, kids from all different ethnicities and nationalities that were uh, present in, in our school. Um, one story in particular, so you ask, is it was it a check the box activity or were we really doing work? I think that we did a really good job and I think it's also a parallel to what many organizations do. 
around awareness building activity. And so, you know, how can you become aware of differences and understand, you know, different cultures, you know, that might be present in a, a, a institution. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, we did a lot of awareness building activity. One uh, uh, event in particular that comes to mind, I remember we had a potluck and everyone was supposed to bring in taste of your culture. Um, and my mom, you know, in addition to being a technology uh, uh, executive, she also is a gourmet chef. And so the, my favorite thing that my mom made was quiche Lorraine. So um, we have the sign up sheet and everybody has to sign up, you know, for what they want to bring. And I sign up and I'm like, oh, I want to bring in quiche Lorraine. And literally I had an instructor come to me and say, well, Jennifer, that's not reflective of your culture. Don't you think that maybe you should bring in fried chicken or uh, watermelon or, or something like that instead? And when I went home and, and shared, I said, well, my mom doesn't make that very well. <laughs> and you know, when I went home and, and shared that with my mom, you know, she was, of course, upset. Wow. I mean, people can't see my face. I was like, I went from smiling, thinking how lovely this was to, oh my gosh, I can't believe someone would actually say that to you. Uh, Clearly that, yeah, that clearly the teacher needed some diversity and inclusion training. Yeah. So I, I drew the parallel to the experiences that many organizations have as well. You know, I think that in an effort to have some awareness building activity, truly understanding and getting into the nuances of differences and what that means is we're, you know, I think as a society, we've got a long way to go beyond smiling that there are differences within the system. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's, that's uh, shocking to me. <laughs> you also mentioned that you've traveled to 30-something countries and in, in many different continents. What brought that about? Was that part of your work or just a passion for travel and understanding our world? Mm-hmm. So the latter, just a, a passion for travel and understanding the world. I think that uh, also understanding that I've always been curious about life and how people experience life. And so it is uh, definitely just a, a strike of wanderlust and uh, wanting to, again, better understand and learn from you know, the history of places and uh, of communities. Uh, one uh, a, a place in, in particular that, you know, a couple are, are deeply moving and impactful, but uh, I've been to two uh, uh, countries in, in Africa, Egypt, uh, as well as South Africa, and, you know, very different experiences in both places. Uh, however, I think that as it relates to the, the current times, uh, my experience in South Africa was deeply moving. I had a chance to visit Robben Island and, and actually hold the bars of Nelson Mandela's cell, um, as well as uh, go to you know the apartheid museum and uh, a, a another uh, a facility called District Six, where they actually have you know folks that are or were the descendants of you know uh, um, having experienced apartheid, um, giving tours on Robben Island. The individuals that were enslaved or uh, uh, incarcerated on the island are now giving tours. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that you know I was deeply moved by was the fact that you were once behind these bars and now you are giving tours. You know, what was that process like for you to, you know, go through this, obviously a a deep series of uh, of forgiveness and healing um, to be able to show up now in a uniform day in, day out at the same place that, you know, you were held uh, again, you know, and, and were unable to leave simply for speaking out and, you know, advocating for equality, you know, for all and, and, and against apartheid. And so, you know, these are things that happened within my lifetime. 
uh, just as you know, the, the current social unrest is uh, a part of uh, uh, my 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 history and the, the history that is being written and will be um, reviewed, you know, generations from now. And so I think that even looking at you know the current moment, you know, a lot of the peace and, and reconciliation work that was done in South Africa are topics and areas that we as a society could definitely learn a lot from. It's interesting. I had the opportunity to go to South Africa in November, right after Barack Obama was elected. In the organization, I was there with uh, uh, on a mission trip with my church, and one of the things that we had the opportunity to do was to stay in the home of a host family. And my host family, the father, had been imprisoned for 26 years as part of fighting, you know, for his rights or for rights of black people in South Africa. And he told us, I wish, you know, that was before, you know, everyone was carrying an iPhone or they weren't, I don't guess they were even in existence then. I don't remember. I didn't have one. And I listened to those stories and I kind of kicked myself because I either didn't write them down or record them in some way because every night he would share, I was so curious about his experience and how his wife, he was sentenced to die several times during that time of imprisonment and actually was supposed to be executed the day that apartheid was ended. Wow. And to hear not only his stories of that, but then he was so curious of what was going on in the United States and so hopeful. The way he kind of worded it was that it, it gave him hope for his children to see that a black man could be elected to president. And, you know, kind of understanding differences, et cetera. The person that was my roommate on the trip was apparently, uh, you know, not very much a Barack Obama fan. <laughs> and, you know, that's okay. But she literally could not listen to his stories because she was so frustrated that he was talking positively about Barack Obama. And it gave me kind of a pause, as you said, to she missed such an opportunity to both learn history and appreciate perspective. And his story was amazing. And to hear him and the hope that it gave him to see for his own children in a different country of what is possible because of what someone else achieved, you know, the see it to believe it. And I, I wish, you know, to this day that I had had the opportunity to continue more discussions with him around that, but really I'm grateful for that opportunity to have gotten that perspective. And as you said, for you to be able to go there and to be in the physical space and to kind of understand that perspective as well. So thanks for sharing those stories. Well, I also want to talk a little bit more about, you know, kind of where you have come through those experiences and the work that you're doing. You've had the opportunity to work for some large and well-known organizations like the Mayo Clinic and most recently with the Greater Cincinnati United Way. The work, I can understand maybe how you got into it, but tell me kind of what your goal is by the work that you have done and now through your own company, what you're doing with organizations. What are you really focused on? Sure. So uh, I think it's important to first start with my why. Mm -hmm. I've talked a little bit about that, you know, in some of the experiences that I've had uh, in watching my parents navigate workspaces. I think that for me, um, I was a lifelong healthcare professional. And I remember um, going into a hospital with my partner 
at the time and being told that, you know, because we were both females, I was not allowed to stay at the, at the hospital. Right. The doctor who we had a great relationship with had said, you know, you guys will be fine. You know, feel free to stay. You can stay overnight if you like. You know, we allow one uh, immediate family member to stay. And I experienced discrimination within this hospital and, you know, was pretty much uh, put out of the hospital of my partner's room. And that was deeply impactful for me. Um, So at the time I worked in healthcare, I uh, joined uh, an employee resource group. Uh, within an organization that I was working with at the time that I went on to lead an employee resource group and then sit on the organization's diversity and inclusion committee uh, before holding my first formal DNI role. And so having had my own personal experiences, I think that a lot of people are passionate about DNI, diversity and inclusion, um, and kind of bring that uh, to the table. Additionally, I think that people share their own kind of lived experience. Um, and the third area is really being a practitioner of the work and having done research uh, and understanding, you know, the, the ways and levers in which you can truly drive organizational change. Uh, and I happen to bring all three. This is not just something that I, I do to check a box. Um, I'm actually uh, adamantly opposed to that approach. And so this is my life's work. Uh, I consider myself to be, I just did an interview recently on activism. And I'm like, no, I'm not an activist. I consider myself to be an equity and inclusion evangelist, right? And evangelism, not in a religious sense, uh, but instead in the way of spreading good uh, information and, uh, and an approach. Uh, it, it reminds me of, and is derived from uh, the early days of evangelism that Microsoft um, kind of promoted to uh, share their brand. And so uh, uh, today, I'm founder and CEO of an organization uh, uh, called Calibrated Lens. Like, mm-hmm. so you can see more clearly today, right? Calibrate to calibrate today, so you can see more clearly tomorrow. But uh, I think it's important to highlight. You know, I specialize in helping organizations enhance uh, uh, their performance productivity and brand presence by centering equity and inclusion. Uh, we, we talk about, you know, diversity and inclusion, and I can speak a little bit about the evolution of the work. I think it's important to realize that, you know, diversity programs were birthed out of crisis. And a lot of people don't realize that, but uh, after the civil rights movement, uh, legislation that was passed in 1964, the Kerner Report was then authored. And as a result of the Kerner Report, we were then, you know, had diversity plans that were put in place within organizations that needed to be managed, right? And I think over time, we have still kind of held on to that old equation of diversity equals inclusion, when in reality, those are two very different words with very different meanings, uh, and one is a verb, right? And so I think that that the older uh, approach at kind of counting heads and meeting quotas has fallen severely short of the desired impact, which is what I consider to be the new equation and my philosophy and the philosophy of my company around this work, which is to create an environment where people experience a sense of belonging and truly, you know, uh, inclusion, as well as have equal access to equitable and inclusive policies, practices, and procedures. And that, as a result, will have diversity as an outcome versus a driver of the work. So that is uh, 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 my philosophy and and how I approach it. Uh, To that point, I've had the the great pleasure of, you know, serving as a a leader within uh, several, you know, large brands. And I think that, you know, it's really helped uh, to create a multifaceted view 
of the work. And so another, I think, noteworthy point is that I don't believe that in order that to uh, achieve the desired outcomes of many diversity programs, having a siloed kind of approach where you have a diversity program sitting in HR, we know that best practice is a reporting relationship directly to the CEO. And if a leader is truly to lead through influence, um, it has to be in lockstep with the executive team. And so if you have a head of BNI that is not a member of an executive team, you're missing the mark. Not to say that you can't do good work, but it won't be as deeply impactful uh, at uh, achieving some of those desired outcomes as it could be. And so uh, what I specialize is helping organizations to mature their programs. I think for a long time, a lot of folks have kind of felt like, well, we've got ERGs, employee resource groups, or we've got a diversity committee, so we're doing the work. Um, when in reality, I, I started the conversation by kind of talking about that awareness building or foundational level understanding, uh, but that's not the plateau, right? But I think many organizations stall at that point, um, at realizing that in, in order to continue to have a, a more profound impact and achieve those desired outcomes. It takes strategic integration and really looking at how can you have a leader-owned DNI strategy and, and introducing equity. I think that in, in these conversations, a lot of organizations have been focused, like I said, on that old equation, diversity and inclusion. Equity has become a buzzword and many programs have added the word equity. Uh, but the question that I always ask is how has your diversity program changed in, by way of impact or resourcing post the addition of equity? And in many instances, it hasn't, right? It, it is just, uh, you know, on trend. <laughs> versus uh, um, something that is being operationalized within uh, organizations. So, How does an organization, I mean, obviously there are a lot of leaders listening to our conversation, whether they're human resources professionals or CEOs or leaders of organizations. So both to drive efforts in their own organizations and for them personally, what, what does equity look like from a strategic perspective? Sure. That's a great question. It is uh, uh, diversity is happening. Inclusion is intentional. Equity is deliberate. It is taking a deliberate look at your systems and understanding where you may be producing disparity. Right. And so uh, uh, oftentimes you hear folks talk about maybe pay equity, which is the most common uh, and popular uh, kind of uh, uh, area of equity to be assessed within organizations. But realizing that that same lens can be applied to any of your HR uh, processes. And so looking at a full talent life cycle, where are you recruiting from? Right. So if you are recruiting from the same places, you know, what might it look like to Instead of in recruiting from, you know, all of the maybe top 10 colleges that you normally recruit from, what would it mean to shift and go to HBCUs and have a, a more targeted effort in areas or communities that are uh, more populous of, you know, a, a demographic group that you would be looking to bring into your organization? Now, is the goal of like you, you, that example, if, if traditionally we've recruited from the top 10 schools or the 10 schools our executives went to, which are likely not a diverse group, and we switch that strategy to recruiting, you know, primarily at HBCUs or places where we haven't been, is, is the goal of that effort to bring in a diverse mix of, you know, to make our workplace more diverse and then we work on equity or is that a step that in the equity? A, that is a step in equity, okay. right? Um, and, and I think that to your point, it is not necessarily just about 
recruiting, but instead establishing relationships. Mm -hmm. I think that where many organizations miss the mark is by reaching out to organizations and saying, hey, we want to pull or we want to recruit from your institution, but what would a mutually beneficial relationship look like? What are the services you are providing as a business? And what might it look like to establish a partnership or a relationship? What we know is that the pipelines, uh, and this is going back to that uh, uh, recruitment phase, pipelines are not as diverse as they would need to be, requiring different strategies. And so I think that in addition to, you know, reaching out to say, we'd like to recruit from your institution, saying that we know we need to start to build a pipeline earlier. So what are the high school or the, the, the schools that you are connected to and how can we start to you know, have uh, programs around uh, career awareness uh, in our industry or in our field for kids younger and earlier in their journey. I, I know that uh, uh, many programs, uh, again, if we look at STEM fields especially, um, there's a, a tremendous opportunity there to start to uh, uh, expose young people from uh, marginalized communities and underrepresented communities earlier. And so, you know, again, strengthening the relationships with other institutions to uh, start to work on those things. And so those are, I mean, that's a really kind of remedial step, but that is a practical step that an organization could take towards looking at equity. Uh, Another uh, area is, you know, assessing your, your promotion processes. Right. And um, equality is giving everyone the same thing. Right. So not giving everyone the same opportunity. But what would it look like to create a program or an incubator within your institution targeted at, you know, folks where you have an underrepresented popul- population? And so that is an equity pro would be an approach at an equity program, not looking to give everyone an opportunity to a mentor. But where you have an underrepresented group within your, your workplace, how can you create pathways with intentionality? Like I said, it, it, Equity work is deliberate. It won't just happen. It is intentionally shifting what you do and how you do it with the goal of producing different outcomes. We know what perpetuating the status quo and doing the same thing will produce, right? And it's not just about hiring people into positions. Um, A lot of organizations have a, a focus on, you know, recruiting a more diverse talent. What I would propose is what would it look like to retain and grow your internal diverse talent? And so I think that, um, you know, in many instances, we want to bring folks in, but we aren't looking always at the attrition rates. And so many organizations can definitely recruit diverse talent, but are you retaining them for longer than two years? Should be kind of a litmus test of um, the efficiency and effectiveness um, of your program. I want to ask a question more out of curiosity. I'm on a learning journey, like hopefully many people and people listening to this podcast. And obviously, it's been a while since I've been in a um, you know leadership and executive role, you know, leading quote diversity efforts. Back when I you know was was in an executive role, we we had diversity efforts. That was it. You know, inclusion hadn't even entered the game. So you know, in my past experience, it was a lot about, you know, looking at, you know, the population data from your area and at least trying to, you know, put efforts in place to achieve parity in numbers in your ranks. So a question today, you know, obviously the work that you're doing is is now, um, you know, very much in demand, rightly so. For the leading organization, the, the organization out there that truly wants to be doing it right, how do you achieve, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging? Do you target, let's say you live in the middle of a state that is predominantly white? 
are, are you still today looking to mirror your kind of local demographics? Or are you really saying, okay, we need to look at people of all different, um, you know, racial, cultural, um, you know, whatever kinds of backgrounds and try to make our organization in the middle of this, you know, predominantly white or black or whatever area look like the world? Or are we trying to strive to achieve what is right, what is uh, similar to our local area? Did that long question make sense? (laughs) It makes sense. And I think that's the question that a lot of organizations struggle with is, you know, what does it mean to uh, uh, receive or achieve parity? I think that taking a step back to the old equation versus the new equation. And the old equation is diversity or differences are the driver. Mm-hmm. I flipped that and would say, what is your organizational culture? Yeah. What are the experiences of folks within your organization? And so it, I'll, I'll um, kind of share a, a resource guide that I recently created. It's called Exploring Differences, Reducing Harm and Evolving Strategies. And it really helps to understand that holistic view. If your goal is to, you know, reflect the external demographics, what are the experiences of those people within your organization? And oftentimes, you know, whether it is, you know, we don't have sufficient qualitative or quantitative data to make a true uh, judgment or uh, uh, state, you know, having a program without digging in deeper to understand the experiences of folks within your organization. So, you know, doing things like a client assessment uh, that look at, you know, what are those experiences and where we have opportunity to create more inclusive leaders. That, you know, oftentimes we look at, you know, folks that are participants of internal diversity groups or diversity efforts. They don't have the power to change your organization. How are leaders, you know, from the top of your organization down, creating spaces and holding their leaders accountable to creating environments of inclusion? And so, you know, what are the inclusive behaviors? How are you practicing transparency? You know, how are you establishing trust? How are you allowing folks to kind of show up as they are uh, to be celebrated when we have been many times our corporate culture has been normalized in dominant culture? Right. And so a lot of the things that we are uh, holding or expecting, are they truly tenets of inclusion or are they, you know, a a condition of um, assimilation? Are you asking people to, you know, show up, be authentic? We want to hear your ideas. But the minute they say something that is counter to uh, your belief or your notion, you're saying, well, that's not how we do things around here. Right. Um, or at a, at a team level, you know, folks love to share that, you know, diverse teams outperform more homogenous teams. But that's not true. Well-managed diverse teams outperform uh, uh, teams that like diversity. And so, you know, I think that first starting with uh, inclusion starts with the I. Right. And taking a, a look within and realizing that we all have, you know, differences in diverse uh, characteristics. We all have a racialized lens that we use to view the world and how are you able to unpack your own racial identity? How are you able to pack your own identity prior to being able to see those things in others? So the work really starts with individuals uh, before you can even get to a broader group level. And, you know, having, going back to my early kind of childhood example, you know, having a, a potluck or tacos on Cinco de Mayo isn't helping you to understand your own identity and, and unpacking those things. And then as a means of realizing also that 
you know, two truths can be present and both be true. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think that is a, an, another opportunity. And so uh, speaking to the, the resource guide that I created, it really unpacks how in many instances we have uh, created this false sense of inclusion within organizations and perpetuated that with diversity and inclusion programs. And in reality, um, you know, I'll introduce a new term, which is like tokenizing, right? You can have a token person to say, oh, we've got diversity, right? But is that person truly able to fully contribute all of their differences to impact the outcomes or the, the perspectives and the point of view of the team? Uh, additionally, you know, a lot of organizations are, you know, having conversations now, right? And we want to have, you know, uh, 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 conversations in safety, uh, but realizing that safety is relative. And just because, you know, you're now in a space of wanting to engage in a dialogue, these are people that have been having these experiences in your workplace for years, Right. And, you know, for some, it's been a moment of awakening for others. You know, they have a, a big condition to learn how to navigate in a, in a professional setting to not end up, you know, uh, uh, and I consider it a dance of sorts. Right. How do you navigate and understand what that looks like? And so this is not a one and done uh, conversations of safety in your workplace, you know, it might be a, a container of safety, but the minute that, you know, you have folks that walk outside of that room, is it still safe? Uh, is it still inclusive? Things of that nature. It's interesting. You know, I've seen conversations, um, you know, online or, you know, amongst friends recently and interested in your thoughts on this. Um, is it possible for a person of non-color, I guess that means a white person, (laughs) um, to be the head of diversity and inclusion. What are your thoughts? I think that we're all diverse. We all have, you know, very diverse backgrounds and experiences. I think it's absolutely possible. I think that this also is a a place to introduce a term uh, that we've normalized in in contemporary culture, uh, intersectionality. Right. And realizing that we all have intersectional dimensions of our of our identity. Um, And so just because you may be white doesn't necessarily mean that you don't have other dimensions. Everybody does. Right. It's digging in deep to understand. I think that the experiences of people of color are different and that doesn't there are no oppression Olympics. Right. To say what group has had it worse. Instead, what I would just say is I think that in. I want to also note that the term intersectionality was created by Dr. Crenshaw, Kimberly Crenshaw, that uh, explored the compounded ways that Black women are overlooked in society, realizing that as it relates to gender, uh, male is dominant, as it relates to race, uh, white is dominant. And so really understanding and unpacking the the intersecting ways in which uh, African-American women um, were, were, were missed um, in many of the, the conversations. And so we use that term a lot now, but I always want to go back to where it, it stems from. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, I, I don't uh, necessarily have a strong uh, views on that. I would just say that, you know, everyone has different lived experiences. And I think that where we have uh, an opportunity as a society is to value people for their lived experience as experts in their own life. Mm-hmm. Um, whatever that may be. And so in valuing someone as an expert in lived experience, you know, who knows what those experiences have been and how it is, you know, impacted or shaped their lens in which uh, they view the world. I think that, you know, as long as leaders that are doing this work come to the table with a sense of cultural humility, 
uh, realizing that you will never know everything about any one group. Demographic groups are not a monolith and that, you know, simply understanding stereotypical uh, cultural norms is harmful. Right. Mm -hmm. And and I think that uh, also having the ability to call out harm uh, when it is done, I think that, you know, especially in this moment, what that looks like in doing so with grace is another opportunity. So, again, I don't I don't have strong feelings on who should be leading BNI, just that they should be committed to the work mm-hmm. and understanding what it takes. And it's not, again, awareness building activity. Um, we have to get beyond that foundational level. And if we are to continue to evolve efforts, um, it will take time, but you have to know what you're doing. And, you know, oftentimes you see folks within organizations that might, you know, go to a person of color and say, oh, we want you to leave this discussion. Just because, you know, it's a person of color or someone from an underrepresented group does not make them your diversity expert. Right. And that is another topic that I dive into in the resource guide that I mentioned. And we will link to that resource guide in the show notes so that people can have an opportunity to get that. Kind of, I guess, where I've been thinking while we've been chatting and you know, I'd done some research in the past. I've never been a diversity and inclusion expert, never called myself that, but certainly in talking to human resources leaders and leaders of organizations have talked about the importance of diversity, inclusion, equity, belonging in the past. And for one program in particular, I did quite a bit of research on what made companies that were successful, you know, winning awards for diversity, inclusion, which, you know, we, we could argue doesn't necessarily mean that they're successful. But one of the things that kind of stuck out to me in in that research was is that a lot of those companies, of course, big name companies that many of us are aware of, they incentivize diversity and inclusion for their executives. What are your thoughts on that? I think that we have to get beyond it's the right thing to do mm-hmm. and allowing that to serve as a basis. We know that, you know, what gets measured gets done. And if we, you know, are to hold people accountable Um, which is what is required to make those shifts and changes. I don't necessarily see an issue with incentivizing it. I think that you are leaders in general are more uh, apt to, you know, do something if there's an incentive attached to it. You know, I, I think that right, wrong, indifferent, some might say, well, no, we should just be doing it because it's the right thing to do. But where has that really gotten us? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I have also uh, seen that, you know, organizations that do create incentives uh, for executives, um, you know, do tend to have uh, different and, and better outcomes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, I don't think that it's an either or. I think it's a both and. Yeah, I think, you know, the interesting things that came out of that, again, that research for me were, you know, not necessarily that those companies, some of them here in Cincinnati, you know, well-known Fortune 100 companies, um, it wasn't that they were incentivizing, again, the the number, the percentages. It was incentivizing executives for their involvement in the community uh, to promote, you know, racially diverse groups. They're mentoring, you know, how many people were they mentoring from racially diverse backgrounds? So it was, I think, at least a good approach. Now, clearly, we, we've not succeeded as a, you know, as a global community uh, in those efforts yet. But I think... Uh, really thinking about, and that's the work that you do with companies, correct? Really thinking about how do we, to use a term, you know, operationalize this so that it is how we do business and it's not quotas. It's more about, as you've referenced a couple of times, the work and the efforts that we're doing to build into others 
you know, and not centering our efforts on people that look like us when we do that. And if it takes incentives or, you know, part of that being a performance-based thing to ensure that leaders are considering that part of what makes our organization successful, um, sounds like a good approach to me. Mm -hmm. I agree. And to your point, it's integrating it into everything that you do. And I know I started by saying, you know, the siloed kind of HR based programs, HR is only one component of the work. And I think that, you know, from a human capital standpoint, your people exist uh, within your institution, but what are the, the policies that they're following? And that gets into, you know, what I do and, you know, really helping to bring your folks along in this journey, but within your policies, practices, and procedures, where do you need to transform and then allowing your people to then operate within those different systems? Mm-hmm. And it, it, it's almost, as I, I like to put it, you know, dissecting and tearing apart your organization in many instances to understand where you have the greatest opportunity in those levers. You mentioned, you know, the, the organizations that win awards and whatnot. I think it's, you know, one thing to uh, have a program and something else to culturally embrace um, you know, the, the, the philosophical shift in having an equitable and inclusive culture, it becomes a space or an environment where, um, you know, if you are counter to that, that's not the space for you, right? If you are not, you know, one that is valuing differences um, or understanding of uh, um, what that looks like, you know, to create inclusive environments and hold that as a sense of responsibility and accountability. If all of your folks and your leaders, you don't have to agree. I think that oftentimes we, we confuse the goal of reaching this kumbaya state. It's not, right? It, it, the desire is not always to change everyone's beliefs. That's not success. It's teaching how to be mutually respectful of differences and understanding and seeing and valuing those differences in others and understanding that those are the things that make us better. Not, you know, everybody singing from the same hymn book of sorts. Mm, I like that. I think that's a good place for us to kind of leave people with the opportunity to get your resource guide to learn more and tell us one more time what that's called. So uh, I'm Jenny Ingram. Calibrated Lens LLC is my organization and the resource guide specifically uh, exploring differences, reducing harm, and evolving strategies. And again, we'll link to that in the show note and also how you can get in touch with Jennifer if you're interested in furthering the conversation with her. I could chat with you all day, but I appreciate the opportunity to chat with you again briefly today and look forward to continuing to learn from you in the future, Jennifer. Wonderful. Thank you so much for having me, Jennifer. I I appreciate the time that we've spent together and look forward to remaining engaged. It's time for you to get noticed, create change and grow your influence. Don't waste any time. Subscribe to this podcast and help us get the word out by leaving a review.